Welcome to the One Haas Podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today, we have Soyeon Yoon, graduate of the Berkeley Haas Executive MBA program and research scientist at Gladstone Institutes. Soyeon is an avid researcher with a passion for bringing diverse talent and ideas together to innovate solutions that overcome incurable diseases. Soyeon, welcome and great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Lovely to be with you. Yes, yeah, Soyeon. You've had a ton of accomplishments to date. I just wanted to summarize a couple. You are a Cal Double Bear, a Berkeley Haas MBA, a 2022 Best and Brightest Executive MBA by Poets and Quants, and you were also nominated as class speaker by your peers at your commencement. So my first question is, when you were a little kid in Jeonju City, did you know you would be where you are today? Just in hearing all of those things that have happened in the past year or so, it just gives me a little bit of chills to think that a little girl that didn't know anything about the world, let alone America, um, got to do all of those really amazing things. Uh, that was such a high privilege for me to be part of. But no, Jeonju City is kind of like Berkeley. Um, there's not that much of population. It's very much of a mid-small uh, town. And I was born and raised in a town you know, that didn't really have a lot of people from other countries or other cultures. It was very much of a homogeneous population. And so the answer to that question is absolutely not. It would not be even imaginable for me to be sitting here and talking with you about all of those things that have happened in my entire life. What was your journey like early on? Can you share a bit about your background? That's actually one of the weirdest things. My story is very unusual in my family. My family are very academic, but in other areas, not in the sciences at all. And so I'm sort of the, I'm very well known in the family as the uh, mutant of the family, <laughs> um, being, being a very unusual um, in terms of what I like to do and, and what I'm interested in. And so no one was interested in the biology or sciences. I just really got, got very, I guess, gravitated towards biology and medicine growing up because I would see some really amazing figures on TV or even in cartoons and back in the day. And you would see a lot of uh, stories that had heroes that would go out and cure people or heal people. And that's something that I always had some sort of a fascination as a little child. And I think being in the science classes in elementary school and middle school definitely got me to be even more intrigued about this perhaps being part of my future, but I had no idea exactly in what form that would actually take when I actually did become an adult. How did you go from Chanju to Berkeley, where you eventually would go become an undergraduate student? Well, actually, there's two, I guess, regions that I uh, had to go through in order to get to California. Mm. So from Chanju City in South Korea, my father and my mother sent my sister and I, I have a sister who's two years younger than me, to Vancouver, Canada. Oh, wow as an international student. And so we were there, I was 14 years old and my sister was 12. And so we were there to essentially study abroad and be exposed to this world that was international with a lot of people from different ethnicity, race, culture. And so that was really my first introduction to this idea of a global stage with a rich diverse community. And from Vancouver, I went to Richwood, New Jersey, of all places in the United States, still as an, as an international student. That's really where I got to really understand and also learn about America with a little bit of a twist and turns that 
life always throws at you. I ended up being in Albany, California. That's where I did my last semester of my high school and uh, subsequently went to Berkeley right after that. So it's definitely a lot of twists and turns that I didn't anticipate. But I think looking back, it was really important that I had that much of exposure to this bigger world with people that just didn't really think like me or even talk like me, but they were just really kind and really good people that had really good heart. And I always I've kept that with me as a life lesson that wherever I go, that's something that I do have to keep in mind that I also have to extend as a friend and as a colleague in any places that I were to work at. That's an amazing experience. And probably not uncommon amongst folks in the Haas community. But could you share a little bit about what, what was that experience like You're going from your hometown to you living in Canada and then the States and then you come to Berkeley of all places as an undergrad, which has its own culture in and of itself. What was that like being exposed to so many different things and any memories or experiences that kind of you think about now or, or you still remember from that time? Oh, it was such a big shock. I've never <laughs> been, I've never seen anybody in real life that was not Korean. Mm. And I remember walking into my a day one of class and I was in, in, in a school at West Vancouver in Canada. And I remember seeing, you know, white people, seeing also people from Iran and seeing some Russian kids as well. It was like all over the map. So I kind of had that initial shock of a girl that never knew that such other ethnicities and also people with a different look even existed in the, in the world in real life until I actually went into that classroom in West Vancouver. So that was a huge shock. And then on top of that, I didn't know how to speak the language. So I think for me, wanting to really get to know them just out of a personal curiosity, but also knowing that I didn't speak English enough to really build that relationship and to really get to know people, that was definitely a big challenge. And also this mind and this thinking of, will I actually be able to exist and survive in such an ecosystem when I don't know anybody and I don't also know what the general culture is like? So it was a lot of shock and also personal worries that I don't know if I'll be able to survive, if I'll be able to thrive in a community like this. You know, so and academically, you definitely kind of thrived and ended up coming to Berkeley as an undergrad. What was that like, you know, for a lot of MBAs and folks in the Haas community, even choosing a school and going through that application process is, is really one major inflection point. What was that like for you? And, and what did it feel like when you got on campus? So UC Berkeley, just as a name and as a brand, is huge in all parts of the world, but particularly in Asia. So I think even if I didn't really understand or know about America so much, I always have heard something about Berkeley. So there's that sort of a familiarity there and also the the awe and the just the respect for what this institution stands for. And so I think I definitely uh, was very intimidated by this idea that I will be applying to a school like this because that would mean that I felt that I was qualified and I also felt that I was smart enough to get into a school like this. So a lot of intimidation and also a lot of, I just don't think this will work. So why why bother even writing the application? I remember that thought very distinctively. And, you know, I think for me at that point, I've gone through and also learned a lot through that multicultural environment, both in Canada and the States, to know that 
life is really about trying things and you'll never know if you don't try. And so really the application was more about, I know that I'm not going to get in, but let me just give this a try. I mean, you never know. <laughs> and so that's basically sort of the mindset that I had that I probably not get in for sure, but I'm just going to give it my best shot. And if my best shot doesn't work out, then I'll just go with my plan B or plan C. So I remember that anxiety that has always been with me. And so of course, when I heard the news that I got accepted, I was beyond puzzled <laughs> and also thought, I think surely there had been some paperwork mix up because <laughs> I, got, I got admitted. And uh, sure enough, when I actually did get that letter, the uh, hard copy letter in my mailbox back in the day, oh, wow. I thought, okay, this is now different. This is now a real thing. And I really need to put my A game on. That's awesome. So when you when you got on campus, you ended up studying biology, but you know, did you gravitate immediately to biology or what was that journey like? I think biology was something that I had in mind to major in, but I didn't really know what that would look like. And I remember first few classes that I had to take, it was just really big. Biology department in the College of Pattern Science at UC Berkeley in and of itself was a huge department and there's hundreds of students. And so I remember, I remember distinctively on one of the days I was at the auditorium in the Wheeler Hall and there were about 800 students in one class. Holy moly. And so, <laughs> right. And, and I'm only one of 800 and I don't know where to sit. I don't know people. I just didn't know how I would survive an ecosystem like this. But one of the classes that really I was gravitated towards and that really got me to think, I really want to do biology, I really want to do neuroscience of all things, was in a human anatomy class. I was taught by Marion Diamond, who is no longer with us, unfortunately. And I remember on the very first day of the class, she brought one of those English hat boxes that ladies would use to store their fascinators. And she went on the podium in that auditorium of 800 students and she wore a nitrile glove and then opened the box and pulled out a real human brain. Oh, wow. And that was my first introduction to neuroscience. And that was my first introduction to what biology or what a life and career in biology could look like in studying things like this and also studying things that may go wrong if you do something where if something you know just happens. And so that was really my first real grab in thinking, I really want to do biology. I really want to do neuroscience. Wow. You know, one of the things that folks experience is that transition from going from full-time student to kind of full-time working professional. What was that like for you and, and any memories or, or things that stick out to you from that time period? I think the transition from being a student to working professional was really, really tough for me. So keep in mind that I was still an international student as an undergraduate student at the time. And so I was still on a student visa when I joined Glassstone as an extension of it, and then later on got a working visa. So I think the moments when it dawned on me that I was no longer a student anymore was when I got that working visa. And I also had to work really hard with my lawyers and other folks in the, in the legals to make sure that I actually got that paperwork done. And I didn't have any sort of support for me to really rely on and to guide me through the process. So I think that's when it really dawned on me. And also when I started to get that first paycheck, which mm. was oh, yeah. really, really um, interesting. 
experience. I remember having this conversation with some colleagues of mine in the laboratory, and they were all very curious about what I was going to be doing with my very first paycheck. And I said, I gave it all to my mother and my father. And they said, well, why? (laughs) I said, (laughs) well, I've always heard growing up that when you get your first paycheck, it is your duty as a child of a parent to give that first paycheck as an expression of, you know, here I am having grown to this phase in my life. And I just want to show my gratitude by giving you this very first paycheck that I've earned all on my own. And so I thought that's what everybody was supposed to be doing. <laughs> but of course, <laughs> you're in America, you're not in South Korea anymore. And everybody's more puzzled and just baffled by this decision that I made. <laughs> it wasn't about banking this for my future graduate school or for my retirement. It was like, I just gave it away. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably what it what sticks out to me the most <laughs> in that particular time period. Could you explain a bit actually what Gladstone Institute does as an organization and what would a scientist typically do in that type of organization or a lab within Gladstone? Absolutely. And and I'm hoping that I'll be able to explain things in a way that's very succinct and clear because it's such a unique organization. And I think life science generally as a discipline, particularly in a business school like Haas, is still not you know, dominance enough for people to right away understand what it does. And so Gladstone on its own is an independent affiliate of UCSF, which is a medical school here in San Francisco. And on a day-to-day basis, we do research in diseases such as Alzheimer's disease or cardiovascular disease, HIV AIDS, COVID. Those are the kinds of research work that we do. And in my particular team, we do research in Alzheimer's disease. And specifically, we're studying the genetic risk factor of Alzheimer's disease, which is called the apolipoprotein E4. And so on a day-to-day basis, my job is to work with a team of scientists to understand the mechanism of apolipoprotein E4 and you know how it actually contributes to a patient developing a worst symptom of Alzheimer's as they're going from the early to the mid to the late stage of the disease phase. So that's kind of the work that I do. And I've been very fortunate to work with graduate students, postdoctoral fellows, and other staff scientists, both at Glassstone and also UCSF to continue that work. It's very similar to uh, a lot of the biology departments in UC Berkeley ground as well in terms of the academic science is concerned. And uh, we're definitely trying to take all of our work really out by publishing in peer-reviewed journals or taking this and spin this out as a startup company to commercialize and to discover certain drugs that actually ends up going into the patients. So that's awesome to hear. What was that like for you trying to figure out that you wanted to go and pursue getting an MBA? And can you bring us back to the application process and what you were thinking as you were going through the process and also finding out that you you were in fact going to come to Haas for the uh, executive MBA program? I even chuckle as I'm hearing your question because I'm being brought back to the time when I thought I will never, ever be stepping on the grounds of Haas. <laughs> when I was, <laughs> when I was under undergraduate students, I just thought, you know, business school is definitely not for me. I actually had some Haas undergraduate friends back in the day, and I just remember them being so tired all the time and just so busy. 
And I thought, you know, that's just so much work for me. I just can't really do it. And biology is more than enough of trouble I want to get myself into. And fast forward about 10 years into my work at Glassstone, doing the research that I absolutely enjoy to do, I began to really understand that in order to do our science, so case in point of Glassstone, you can't just do science. You also have to operate. It's like an organization, it's like a company, right? You have to make sure that all these other things and pieces are in good shape and are running just fine for you to be able to get the money and to use the money to do your science. And so I really got curious about what does operations look like? What does finance look like? What does having a strategy of an organization really look like in a way that really gets us to stick and persevere with our mission, which is all about doing the science that actually overcomes diseases. And so I got really curious what this may look like. And I quickly realized that I don't have any business background. I don't know economics. And I also just don't know what I used to call the ABCs of business. Do I know the alphabets of the accounting? Do I know the alphabets of operations? And so for me, the logical conclusion at that point was, well, if I want to learn the language, I have to go to a school. I have to go to a business school. And so, you know, it's such a weird thing that after all those years, promising myself that I would never go to business school, that I ended up <laughs> thinking that I actually have to go to business school to satisfy that side of curiosity and that really yearning for the learning experience. And so I was looking through some programs. I still wanted to be able to work while studying. And so the full-time MBA program wasn't going to be an option for me. And so I started to look at evening weekend programs and also executive programs across the country. And I thought that I probably will not go to Berkeley because that's where I have been as an undergrad. And I wanted to do something a little bit more new, but something that was quite local. And I went to an admissions event in San Francisco and the former dean of Haas, Rich Lyons, was there to give a talk about you know, why Haas and why now. I think this was probably in 2019 or like later part of 2018. And what he said about the four defining leadership principles just really, really resonated with me. And the very last thing he said that really stuck on my mind, and I'm going to paraphrase it, I don't remember the exact words, but he basically said, look, any business schools that you go all around the world, including the United States, you're going to be learning and going through the same set of classes. You're going to be learning all the same business course. It's not going to be different. And so when you're trying to make a decision about which business school you want to go to, you should really be thinking about what kind of leaders do those institutions train and also graduate by the end. And if all of those leaders, or at least most of the leaders that you're seeing that are being graduated, if you think that there's something about them that's really special, particularly from Haas, it's probably because of these four defining leadership principles. That's the reason why they are different than any other institutions that you're seeing. And so that really got stuck on my mind. And so I started to talk with a lot of graduates and really, really fell in love with just who they are as a leader, but also just who they are as a person beyond the fact that they were very well-versed. They knew what they were doing and they were world experts when it comes to all things business. And so at that point, I made a bet on myself 
looking back, it's probably not a wise thing to do, but I put all my eggs into one basket and only <laughs> applied to Haas, <laughs> thinking that, you know, if it's not going to work out, it doesn't work out, but let's just see how it's going to pan out. And I'll probably shed a little tears if I get a rejection letter. <laughs> and so I went through the application process and tried to be as authentic as possible of who I was and why I really wanted to come to Haas. And very, very fortunately, I was able to go through the application process, all the tests that I had to take, and also, of course, the interview process. And it just really felt, while it was stressful, it just felt relatively good. It didn't really feel like it was an extra chore per se. It was hard, but it wasn't something that I thought that I was dragging uh, myself into because I still wasn't sure about something. And so I think that process was as stressful as it was. It was definitely a really good process to go through. And of course, it was very, very happy to find out that my, you know, all that efforts and also bidding on myself like that ended up very fortunately being a success that I actually got into the executive MBA program. So it was really wonderful. One of the things that really spoke to me, and we were sharing it before we started recording, is you shared really impactfully, I think, that the experience of being in Haas made you feel comfortable to use your, or I guess maybe compelled almost to use your Korean name or your, your given name at birth. Could you share a little bit about that and why it was so impactful to you? And, and maybe share, maybe if you would, just a bit of the backstory of, of that journey and, and how you got to where you are today. So I entered the program uh, with an English name that I will not say here. And I thought that having an English name, having learned English and also being in a foreign country, both in Canada and the States, it just made sense that I needed to assimilate and also make other people's lives easier by having a name that was recognizable and that was easy to remember, that was easy to pronounce. It just made sense to me to some degree, but it also at the same time, I remember thinking, I just don't really feel too comfortable about this, but I'll just do it because it just makes everybody's life very, very easy. Fast forward the 2021 early part, after going through the experiences, I really began to ask myself a question of why am I here to make other people's lives easy when it's not making me feel true to myself? And I really started to think hard about what it really means to be living as an Asian American in a foreign country. And I wasn't also born and raised in this country. And so there was a lot of learnings that I had to do. And I also intend to remember a conversation that I had with some group of friends who told me, you know, one of the things that I just cannot really understand is a lot of the Asian friends and a lot of Asian American friends that they have, they always make a choice to change their name to an American name. And they didn't really understand why our community was doing that. At least some members of our community were doing that. And I tried to explain to my friends at the time, you know, why it was and also really the stress and also the pressure that it is given on many of us often to, to uh, take that course. And they told me, you know, I totally understand that. But at the same time, at a certain point, you have to think about what this means to you and you have to take a stance. And so that really hit me hard because I was thinking about how my parents named me. They didn't just name me just out of, out of a whim or just out of nothing. They really had 
thought about it carefully of what they wanted to name their first child as. And my entire name is really in and of itself a form of a person, a woman that my parents wanted me to be. And so when I started to piece all of these puzzles together in tandem that conversation with my friends, I began to realize that, am I really doing the justice to myself and also to the people that I love? that I will be sticking with an English name when it didn't make anybody comfortable. And first and foremost, it didn't make me comfortable. And so I think that series of internal questioning and meditation and just really self-discovery process really got me to think about what is the easiest and also the most forefront thing on action can I really take in order to start on that discovery path. And the first thing was really the name. Now you're on the other side, transitioning into post-MBA life. You know, could you share a bit about professionally, you know, what do you see in the future? I, I know you shared, you know, you have a passion for incurable diseases and, and even beyond work. What, what are some of the things that you think about and reflect about now that you're, you're beyond the program and, and you're, you're now stepping into this new phase of life? It's sort of like the question uh, that high school seniors get from their parents <laughs> or from their friends, like, what are you going to do? Which college are you going to go to? And of course, for the college seniors, it's the question yet again, of what are you going to do after you graduate? Are you going to get a job? Are you going to go to a grad school? And then of course, when you do graduate from a graduate school, then everyone's asking, well, what are you going to do now? So <laughs> these questions are always <laughs> coming back to us and for some really haunting us. But, you know, I feel strongly about this idea of doing the things that I love to do with the people that I love. That's basically really what I want to do. And if that means that I am at a company in some sort of very junior level or in some other levels, like it doesn't really matter. If it's something that is related to what I really love to do and what I'm really interested in doing, then I'm an open book. And my attitude is just take me and let's uh, go on a ride. I'll do whatever it takes for me to be doing that kind of a work with the people that I truly can respect and also really love to work with. And so to that end, for me, the life sciences as a industry and really as a career is something that I'm very um, interested in pursuing even more. And I realized, and you know, just the decision of coming to Haas, I realized that there are so many functions and roles in the life sciences beyond just doing the research that one really needs in order to deliver that cure, deliver that solution to the patients that are suffering from the diseases. And I think oftentimes we feel that only the doctors or the nurses or the scientists are the ones that really deliver. And, you know, they are the main players. There's no question about that. But I think it's also not intellectually honest thing to say that it only takes people that are working on the benches and in the clinics that really deliver the solutions, really everybody in the ecosystem. Yeah. Well, that's awesome to hear. You know, as as we're winding down on the podcast episode, you know, we have a tradition at Haas on the One Haas podcast of really sharing some words of wisdom. It goes without saying, Sion, your your story, your journey, your passion for the future, really just there's so many nuggets of wisdom. But if you had any other words of wisdom, I'd, I'd love if you would just share uh, with our Haas community, just reflecting on on everything that you just shared about. Are there any words of wisdom that you would share with others? I guess I'll just borrow something that one of my all-time favorite comedian has said. So I think you and everybody else that's listening to the podcast may know of a comedian named Conan O'Brien. And one of the things he said that really 
struck me, but also is a word of wisdom or the phrase of the wisdom that I still keep to this day is nobody knows what they're really doing. And it's a wisdom because we have sometimes, you know, being a Hasi or being anybody um, in the world, we have sometimes this illusion that someone who we think are very accomplished must know everything and must know how to figure things out and must have all the solutions or at least know how to get the job done. And when he said that nobody knows, nobody really knows what to do and, you know, nobody really has an idea, it's really speaking to this idea that if you don't try, you'll never know. And you'll never be able to discover that next step and that next path. It may not be the exact time or the moment or even the right environment for you to try something. And I think in both of our cases, both you and I, the pandemic was definitely not the right moment, uh, if you kind of think about it, to be taking on an educational journey as intense as it was But I think because by the virtue that we tried, we don't really know exactly how we did it or why we did it, or, you know, we sort of like don't really know the exact steps of it. But because we still gave it a try, we had a lot of learning and we're definitely a better version of of ourselves than compared to two or three years ago. So I guess in borrowing his words that nobody really knows what they're doing, I would just really implore everybody to keep their mind wide open and think more about this mindset of the growth mindset that we've learned in our classes. Think more about expanding the pie. There's a lot more to learn from and there's also a lot more to share. And so it's really the idea of never being satisfied with what you're doing and also Don't be too anxious about the unknowns. It's always going to be there, but you'll never be able to get closer to what it is that you want to be able to get closer to without giving a shot. Well, Soyeon, I've been so inspired from our conversation today. I'm so thankful to have you on the podcast. You know, we definitely at the podcast wish you all the best in the future. And thanks again for having you here today. Thank you so much, Chris. This was really an awesome conversation. And uh, thank you so much for having me here today. It was such an honor. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley House podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Go Bears.